is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, if you think gas prices are high now, just you wait. OPEC and other oil-producing countries have decided to sharply cut production. Now, this comes as Southern California in particular has been seeing a surge in gas price hikes. It also comes after President Biden visited Saudi Arabia this summer to ask for some help with oil. We'll go in-depth into what this all means for all of us. And remember the movie Rust? Well, it was not supposed to finish following that horrible accidental shooting death of the movie's cinematographer at the hands of Alec Baldwin, but a lawsuit settlement is now leading to a change of plans. The Ukrainians keeping up their offensive in the southern part of their country. Happy story to come out of the hurricane in Florida. A group of volunteers got on their boats. They helped save nearly 300 parrots at a reserve. We'll talk to one of the volunteers. And it looks like Elon Musk is going to take over Twitter. Will we notice when he's handed control? What kind of changes could he make? And if you've seen the best before labels on food, a lot of confusion leads to food waste. Europe is trying to change that. Are we going to follow? We start, though, with oil. Andrew Lipow is an oil industry analyst based in Houston. Andrew, thanks for being with us. So in the past few weeks, we've had, except, of course, in California, uh, oil prices dipped a bit, which was good news for the White House. Now the prices look like they're destined to go up. Well, that's correct. I mean, the oil market has rallied about $8 a barrel in anticipation of this OPEC plus production cuts. And now that we have the news that they plan on reducing their production quota by 2 million barrels a day, the market is worried about supplies as we go forward. And they are doing this because they felt that that um, price per barrel was was getting too low for them. So then we're going to have to deal with the after effects of them them reducing production. So then the prices will raise. Well, they never come out and say it that way. But I think that OPEC plus, first of all, is really worried about a worldwide recession due to the higher energy prices we saw earlier this year, which really in part were caused by their refusal to increase production at a time when there wasn't enough oil and we were wrestling with Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine and the impact of the oil market. They also may already be seeing some demand destruction in other parts of the world and are taking preemptive action in order to maintain their revenues. I also think that OPEC plus is being negatively impacted by the strong dollar and inflation and their needs for ever higher revenue to maintain their budgets. So is there a way to sort of neatly translate for people what this will all mean? Uh, OPEC plus cutting, what is it, 2 million, I think, barrels a day. Uh, How does this impact what we pay for gas, for example, at the pump? Is there a way to kind of equate that in dollars and cents? Well, we always think about every $1 per barrel change in crude oil impacts the price of gasoline by about two and a half cents a gallon. So outside of California, which has already seen record gasoline prices, I expect that the na- that gasoline prices are going to be drifting up over the next couple of weeks. However, in California, ironically, we might have a different result because California consumers have been plagued by a number of refinery outages, both planned and unplanned, and the majority of those are ending in the middle of October. And as a result, I expect that wholesale prices are going to fall and that will lead to lower prices at the pump. 
Yeah, and the governor trying to switch us to that winter blend earlier, so maybe we at least get some help there. You mentioned Russia earlier. What does this mean for them? Heavily dependent, obviously, on on the price of oil and revenue from it. So if prices go back up, I mean, that only helps them right now. Well, that is certainly the case. I mean, they benefit like the rest of OPEC from higher oil prices. What we have to see play out is the European Union is about to impose their ban on Russian crude oil purchases that goes into effect December 5th. And the question is, well, where are the alternative supplies going to come from? And that's one reason we've seen the administration as well as governments in Europe release strategic petroleum reserves to make up for the difference. Andrew Lipow, oil industry analyst based in Houston. Right now, though, the White House tried to stop the OPEC and other oil producing countries from cutting production. It didn't work, even though President Biden personally went to Saudi Arabia in August to ask the country to help the U.S. out. And then there are the midterm elections coming up. Ben Lefebvre is the energy reporter for Politico. Ben, thanks for being. Interesting thing, of course, here is that, as you know, when President Biden went to Saudi Arabia, he was heavily criticized right at the time, uh, mainly because of the involvement of the Saudis in the killing of the journalist Khashoggi. Um, But the White House at the time was sort of saying, oh, kind of wait and see, Uh, you know, he's going to get some concessions out of the Saudis to help out the oil situations. Well, it didn't work out that way. No, it didn't. Um, The Saudis, right after that meeting, if you remember, kind of promised a small bump in oil production, which they did try to carry through. But as we see, like, you know, three or four months later, as we're only a few weeks out from the November midterm elections, they made a huge reversal today. Um, it's not quite as bad as it looks. They promised a two million uh, barrel a day uh, cut in oil production. Um, a lot of analysts think it'll actually be closer to one million barrels a day or lower. But uh, whatever the case, a cut in production now is almost guaranteed to increase gasoline pump prices in the weeks uh, leading up to this you know, important election. So was anything actually secured at that meeting, if we go back and try and look at what, what some of these ideas were? Because, and then again, if we look at the timing, if you're going to do it, they're doing it right before the election. Yeah, I, you know, it, it didn't seem like there was much kind of done before. You know, remember that before that trip, I mean, Biden was pretty clear that he was not happy with the Saudis for, for mainly human rights issues. And um, Democrats and Biden's agenda have been pretty clear in that while they've been boosting um, oil production in the U.S. You know, in the short term, for the long term, they're thinking moving much more towards renewable energy. That was the whole you know, Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure bill. So every, everything kind of shows them trying to reduce the influence that Saudi Arabia can have on the U.S. with oil production in, in the long term. But you know, today, I, I think Saudi just basically – uh, showed that it's it's much more interested in a future closer to um, uh, its partner Russia, uh, which is you know part of OPEC Plus, which is kind of like the larger OPEC affiliate, um, and, and less interested in, in making the U.S. happy with with its uh, energy policy. And I was going to ask you about Russia that this would help, right, the Russians because yeah. if the price of oil goes up. Uh, even if they're more limited than they used to be in terms of markets where they can sell their oil, they are going to benefit from a premium price. Correct. I mean, one one interesting read on this move from the Saudis to, or from OPEC today is that 
they're, they're trying to take a preemptive swing against what's kind of looking to almost be a buyer's cartel. We saw G7 nations, uh, the U.S., uh, you know, Germany, some others kind of come out and say they want to put a cap, an overall cap on a maximum of how much they will pay for Russian oil. It would basically be a percentage, like, you know, uh, that they would then reduce. So I think uh, after a while, you know, the U.S. would be paying just, you know, or, uh, you know, cooperating countries would be paying, you know, almost cost for Russian oil. This would basically raise the floor on how much Russia could charge. So if you see oil prices, I mean, they jumped in the past few days, uh, you know, five or six bucks a barrel in the U.S., about the same internationally. That helps Russia kind of maintain its uh, income flow from all the oil it's selling, even as countries are trying to move away from buying its oil. There's always pressure on the president, you know, hey, dip into the uh, strategic reserve Mm -hmm. when the gas prices get too high. We've done that or we did that not too long ago. And do the OPEC countries not like it when we do that? Like, hey, if you're going to dip in your reserves, you're not going to take it from us. Well, then we'll cut production. They, you know, it was interesting. Today in their in the OPEC uh, press conference, you know, someone brought that up. You know, did you think the SPR release was, you know, uh, friendly to you? And, and they basically just said it was all right. They said they, they thought it was done at a uh, decent timing. Um, I was kind of surprised about how conciliatory they were with it. They basically said, you know, hey, there, there was a war going on. There were geopolitical events that were scrambling the markets, you know, if you're going to tap the SPR, that was the right time to do it. Having said that, you never know what they're thinking behind closed doors. I mean, I would imagine that you're right. You know, that that release of U.S. oil and oil from other nations, um, you know, basically dropped price on you know, uh, oil all over the world. The Saudis are making a little bit less. They're less able to ship product into the U.S. Um, you know, there was interesting stories of, you know, at that time they ended up uh, um, kind of buying more Russian uh, fuel to kind of like help Russia out at that time. So this this might have been again another shot across the bow of stop meddling in markets. But at least publicly, they're they're saying they had nothing to do with that. Ben Lefebvre, energy reporter for Politico. Coming up, a group of rescuers took action in Florida to help a few hundred parrots from Hurricane Ian. And confusion over labels could be causing people to throw out tons of perfectly good food. Right now, though, it looks like the movie Rust is going to go to theaters at some point. The family of Helena Hutchins, who was a cinematographer shot and killed by Alec Baldwin on the set in New Mexico, agreed to settle the lawsuit against Baldwin and the movie's producers. Hutchins' husband will be an executive producer of the movie and get a portion of the profits. Tracy Pearson, an attorney and legal and cultural analyst based here in L.A. Tracy, thanks for being with us. So were you surprised by this when, when you saw it this morning? Because that's most of the reaction I'm seeing going, okay, uh, maybe we could see a settlement was coming in this, but we're actually going to see the movie. Thank you for having me. You know, I'm not surprised. And here's why. There is, uh, there are three factors that are driving this. The first is uh, most importantly, uh, honoring Helena Hutchins' memory. She was part of making this movie and they want to uh, finish the work that she started. The second piece here is that there is a son. Uh, Helena Hutchins has a son Uh, And it's an effort to provide support to him moving forward. And then thirdly, um, there's a production issue, which is that there is uh, the story is based around a young boy and that young boy may age out of the role, thereby precluding them from making the film. And I think that it's a good choice. I think that honoring Helena Hutchins by completing this film and resulting in, in some good for her family is a good choice. Well, of course, the the civil settlement, right, does not preclude prosecutors uh, in New Mexico from if they choose and if they think that there's sufficient evidence to press criminal charges. And if they do, 
that would have a problem then with production again, wouldn't it? Whether it would have a problem with production remains to be seen. Uh, typically, you don't want witnesses cavorting with each other in an effort to uh, protect testimony. But what I would say is that the criminal case may have been uh, severely damaged today by the statement given by Matthew Hutchins' representatives. He doesn't wish, as 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 one of the victims, doesn't wish to place blame on anyone, and he calls it an accident. And I think that's very important to understand. Does that square, though, with with all the blame so far that has been put on on people like the armorer here? And and then that still puts at least her in jeopardy or maybe Alec Baldwin because he was in charge. He was the producer. If if the um, you know, the the prosecutors want to go ahead with this. I think that that when it comes to deciding whether to charge, there's a lot of considerations. And if you don't have a willing a willing victim or a family member um, who's going to cooperate and and potentially provide a victim impact statement that can impact uh, whether a prosecutor wants to go forward, there needs to be accountability, how that accountability comes about, whether that's administrative, who knows. But I, I think that the potential exists that they could want to make a, um, you know, to, to make this a case where um, it, it stands for something. But the armorer and, and, and the people behind the scenes who were responsible for this, this, these weapons um, are, certainly hold uh, some liability in some fashion. But to hear that it's called an accident that really calls into question whether they would proceed with a, a criminal case, given the fact that that's how it's been characterized, at least by the family. I know the terms of the settlement were not disclosed, but uh, would you hazard a guess on this sort of thing? What kind of ballpark figure we're probably talking about? Oh, gosh. You know, I wish I had a crystal ball and I could tell you that. What I can say is that this was a very low budget film. Uh, Alec Baldwin himself uh, was paid $250,000 and he returned $100,000 of that before the events occurred that stopped production. And he offered some more money back before the events that occurred that stopped production. So this was a very low budget film. They had a lot of difficulty getting financing. And um, so whatever money is there is is coming potentially from insurance and from the profits that would be uh, obtained through the film. So I think that that it's it's not as significant as people think. I've been looking online at some of the comments and it, it, there's a lot of cynical for-profit comments that are coming out of of people's fingers in in the inter- on the internet. But I don't think it's it's extraordinarily large. You have to remember that Matthew Hutchins is also an attorney who works for Latham Watkins. And I think that that this is to, to again to help support the son, but also um to make sure his involvement, Matthew Hutchins' involvement in this film is part of that settlement, which is an unusual step. And I think that's to make sure that there the film is completed in a safe manner. Tracy Pearson, attorney, legal, cultural analyst based here in Los Angeles. Tracy, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Vladimir Putin has signed the final papers to take away four regions of Ukraine, make them part of Russia. This comes as uh, Russian troops in Ukraine are losing ground to the Ukrainian forces. It seems uh, that Putin's actions could be escalating the war, which has already dragged on for several months now. Retired Army Colonel Jeff McCausland is a CBS News military analyst, has been with us many times before. Thanks for coming back. So, um... 
this is, and this is the question, I guess, that we keep asking, and we've probably asked you this before. Are we entering a significantly more dangerous phase of this war because of, and you know, you can name almost a, a, you know three or four different things that are now happening simultaneously: the annexation of the region, Putin's speech at the Kremlin, keep, you know, it goes on and on. It, it, so that's the question: it, Are we now in a more dangerous phase? Well, I think we certainly are. In many ways, I would argue that we are probably in the most dangerous nuclear confrontation the United States has been involved with since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Ironically, this month, October, will be the 60th anniversary of that particular crisis. Because if you take the logic train that the Russians use, they will say, okay, we've announced, we've annexed these provinces. Oh, by the way, they didn't control all the territory of these provinces, but they still decided they were going to annex them. And now they formally announced that. They will now argue, and they're already doing so, but this is, in fact, now Russian territory. This is part of the motherland for them. And Putin, in his remarks, as you suggested, has said a number of times that we will use all means, we're not kidding, uh, to defend the territorial integrity of Russia, which now would include, of course, these particular territories that through a sham referendum they have, in fact, annexed. And that's not even a subtle, uh, subtle threat that he might resort to in nuclear weapons. So that's where we are. At the same time, of course, we see the Ukrainians suddenly being coming also very successful in recapturing significant portions after the recapture of the city of Lyman, which is in the Luhansk uh, area of the Donbass, as well as now threatening to take Kherson, very important cities in this area that Putin has now annexed. You know, Graham Allison, who wrote a book called Decision-Making, Essence of the Decision, rather, about the Cuban Missile Crisis, said, you know, John Kennedy's number one concern in many ways was would a leader, when they thought they were perhaps going to experience an enormous catastrophic humiliation and disaster, be more than encouraged to take this sort of cataclysmic roll of the dice to escalate to perhaps use of nuclear weapons, uh, looking for some way out of what looked like to be a humiliating catastrophe. And that, unfortunately, seems to be the way Mr. Putin is heading. This is a catastrophe for him. And as a consequence, what does he do when he's cornered? You know, I've seen people also wondering aloud, all these call-ups in the draft and, and getting all the young men out together and the, the reservists and everything. Can they even support those troops right now with all the necessary equipment and everything? Because they have lost so much and half of it's broken down anyways, which is why the Ukrainians are having uh, the, the time that they're having slicing the path right through. Yeah, it's exactly right. And what we're seeing is a number, frankly, of the, of the best uh, Russian units, paratroop units, I think the 14th Guard Tanks Army, uh, that are, have performed now very, very poorly. Uh, that's in part due to poor motivation. What are we fighting for, number one? Uh, poor logistical support. We have evidence of them being unable to get basic things like food and, and water, uh, poorly led, uh, and as a consequence, those best units are not are doing very poorly. And he can call up 300,000 troops if he wants to, and he has done so, uh, but it's going to take some period of time for them to get those folks together give them at least some degree of modest training, though we will have some evidence some guys are being sent to the front, maybe with only a handful of days of training, um, because they're not going to be effective. If you think, you know, throwing somebody into the breach with a few days training and handing on a musket is going to turn the tide in what is turning out to be a military disaster, that's not going to happen. And the thing we see happening right now is, you know, fear and panic in an organization, particularly a military organization in combat, spreads more rapidly than COVID does. And that, to me, is the biggest threat in many ways that the Russians may be experiencing. So let, let's go down the hypothetical road for a minute or two. 
Uh, let's say our intelligence community, however they do it, concludes that Putin is just about on the verge of actually using a tactical nuclear weapon. What do we do? Well, we've already started doing that. We've made it very clear that the Biden administration have lines of communication to the, to the Kremlin and spelling out for them, you know, that you don't want to do this. And these are some of the consequences that that might incur. At the same time, you want to be somewhat ambiguous because which type of weapon, how many weapons, where they strike, you may have to calibrate your response. And a degree of ambiguity uh, certainly also enhances the deterrent aspect you're trying to get. Okay, but, but, what, but, yeah, maintain- but let me interrupt because I'm curious about what sort of options, when we talk about the different options that would be on the table, what are we actually talking about? What would we do? More sanctions? Yeah, my, hypothetically, uh, I would say the following thing. Certainly more sanctions. You have to maintain certainly a unity of effort with your Europeans. One thing you don't want to do is see NATO shatter over how you respond to this. You can certainly think, I would say to them, look, if you, don't, if you think a, a no-fly zone for Russian aircraft over Ukraine is a bad idea, trust me, that's the first thing that's going to happen. If you think the transfer of high-performance aircraft and more long-range ATACMS now missiles to the Ukrainians is a bad thing, trust me, that's going to happen. If you think more NATO ships in the Black Sea and perhaps strikes on some of the Russian fleet in the Black Sea is a bad idea, trust me, that's going to happen. And those would be the things I would be talking about with Putin. But there's other things you want to underscore. If you want to become North Korea, if you want to become a pariah state in the international community, that's what this will take you to. And do you really believe countries like India or some of the countries in the global south who have kind of ignored this problem or tried to look the other way are going to continue to do that after you use a nuke and kill hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians? That ain't going to happen. And oh, by the way, you might want to call up Xi Jinping who you think is going to support you but hasn't so far, and ask him what he thinks about that. And trust me, he doesn't think that's a good idea either. Retired Army Colonel Jeff McCoslin, CBS News military analyst. Jeff, thanks. You know, lots of uh, bad news has been coming out of Florida because of Hurricane Ian. Dozens of deaths have been reported, homes and neighborhoods decimated. But people came together in a really big way to help rescue nearly 300 parrots and a couple lemurs. They were at a sanctuary near Fort Myers uh, where Ian made landfall. You've seen the pictures from there. People running the sanctuary, they didn't want to leave without the birds. So volunteers, they stepped up for Operation Noah's Ark to save the birds and the lemurs. James Judge actually run for Congress there in Florida, but took time to lead this small flotilla of rescue boats to help get the parrots to safety. He's with us now. James, thanks for being here. So how did this all kind of get together and come about right before that storm hit? Sure, sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, uh, to back up just a second, I was volunteer with a group called Project Dynamo. And Project Dynamo was set up uh, right after the fall of, well, during the fall of Afghanistan uh, when the U.S. government left and we had Americans still over there. So the, the mission of Project Dynamo was really to rescue Americans that were in harm's way. And then it continued with Ukraine and they've been evacuating people out of there. And then when Hurricane Ian happened, as the storm was making landfall, Brian uh, Stern called me and said, hey, man, you want to get the boat in the water and do some rescues? I said, absolutely. So um, I actually have a boat that spent a lot of time out in Los Angeles. My boat is the slice of life that was used in the television show Dexter. I uh, got oh, nice. it from a friend of mine <laughs> that, uh, that worked out there as a stunt coordinator. And uh, long story short, we, we were using the slice of life to go save lives within hours of uh, the, the next morning after. Um, we conducted the very first rescues uh, following that, doing maritime rescues on Sanibel Island, Matt Lachey, Pine Island, uh, Captiva, 
uh, St. James City, Boquilia, all over Pine Island Sound there. And I mean, the area has just been devastated. So uh, we did that for several days, focusing on people. Um, some people had cats, some people had dogs, but then uh, I was actually with my wife, we were dropping supplies off for uh, a senior citizen that we were friends with down there um, at the boat ramp. A gentleman approached me and said, hey, we've got these parrots that are stranded. Do you know anybody that could help us get them off? I go, actually, sounds like a perfect job for Project Dynamo. So um, little did we know we would be getting 275 parrots and two lemurs <laughs> off the island along with their uh, their owners. So how, how did you do that? Did you have to kind of corral them? And uh, were they flying loose in the sanctuary? Were they caged or what? Yes, they were, they were in cages, but the cages are, you know, it's an aviary. So large cages and uh, they... We used four boats to go over, and then Pine Island was still cut off from the mainland as of yesterday. From what I understand now, it has been reconnected. They've uh, made a temporary bridge, but um, but we, the the caretakers were capturing them and putting them in, you know, basically pet crates, pet, pet carriers. And uh, as they were doing that, another volunteer from the island, a retired uh, law enforcement officer, uh, was helping us by driving them from the truck about four miles to uh, a a, a we'll just call them a good samaritan there was a rental house that didn't have uh, anybody at it we were able to utilize the dock space behind it and uh load up i mean uh it's it's been crazy there just with the devastation and there was an empty lot next door we pulled up and used uh, the dock there and uh stacked all the cases there got them on the boats and then uh, brought them across pine island sound to uh, a little place called port sanibel and there we had an air-conditioned trailer waiting for them uh, along with, you know, additional volunteers to help hmm. unload them off the boats. But truly a, a, a unique experience. I love I how it's the first time <laughs> yeah. I've ever had lemurs or parrots on my boat. I love how you're like, yeah, the guy came up and he said, can you help me rescue some parrots? Like, like, oh, some, like four parrots, yeah. right? And about 275. Right, right. <laughs> but, you know, parrots... You said 100 cases of parrots, and I said, pears? Like, <laughs> pears, I mean, yes, the fruit, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> some parrots talked at any say thank you. Uh, actually, there was like a, and I don't, I don't know what kind it was, but I think it was a white cockatoo, like, the, the you know, the ones with the big... Yeah, the big yeah. thing on the head, uh, yeah. And I said, are you ready to get off this island? And it goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, That's awesome. Um, but no, one of them said had a foul mouth. There was uh, one, of the, one of the African greys was a potty mouth. Um, but it was, you know, it was cool to get everybody to come together. And Project Dynamo is, it's a really unique organization. It's, like it said, it started out rescuing Americans from Afghanistan, rescuing Americans from Ukraine. And it's turned into an international rescue organization uh, that really kind of is a, um, I guess stopgap or, or something that between the time that the government isn't responding, the government is responding. If the government's not there, that's when Dynamo is operating and they're rescuing Americans and now uh, uh, animals as well. <laughs> so if anybody's interested in supporting Project Dynamo, they can do so by visiting projectdynamo.org. It's entirely donor funded and it's entirely uh, a volunteer organization. Just a great group of guys, former military, um, counterintelligence, uh, former special operations guys and you know, we were inserting on the beach. We we're literally the only boat out there inserting on the beach, Sanibel Island, um, coordinating rescues, calling in the Coast Guard from a VHF Marine radio and medevac people off the beach in Sanibel, you know, the day after the storm. So a uh, really cool organization to be a part of. And I'm just blessed to uh, be able to do it. James Judge, he's there in Florida, actually running for Congress and uh, the website he gave. But uh, leading lead that small flotilla on the uh, boat from Dexter. To rescue all the parrots. James, Clearly not thanks. a not a fly by night operation. Oh, how would you? Did you think of that <laughs> just like now. during or before? No, just now. Just, just like, it just came to you me. Saving it up. Yeah, no, I wasn't saving. It just <laughs> okay. came. 
This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The Elon Musk Twitter drama might be finally coming to an end. He says he'll buy the company now at the originally agreed upon price, $44 billion. This comes just before a trial was supposed to start and just after some text messages got released for all of us to read. There was concern that Musk would be much more tolerating of misinformation on the platform. So what changes could be in store for Twitter? Burton Kelso is a technology and social media and cybersecurity expert. Burton, thanks for being with us. So presuming that this sale actually goes through and that Musk actually uh, buys Twitter, do you think most people are going to really notice any difference? Mike and Charles, I think they will, because I think the biggest thing that people want to see from Twitter is the removal of the 250 character limit that's currently on the social media platform. Um, And there's other changes that are going to occur as well. Uh, Elon Musk can't talk about how much he hates Twitter and how much the social media platform works, but it hopefully will be a rejuvenation in a platform where many people have really lost interest. I think the only people that currently are on Twitter are political and of course, media personalities. So it will be interesting to see what is going to happen in the long run as far as Twitter is concerned. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because do you think that, that we, <laughs> the Royal we here forgets that sometimes like Twitter is the lower ranking of all of these. And I think it gets outsized importance because a bunch of media types are on it. I think it's kind of like the stepchild as far as all of the social media platforms. And one of the reasons being is that Twitter is kind of a difficult social media tool to use. I mean, it just it's just clunky. So hopefully once Elon Musk buys it, you'll see a little bit of change in how Twitter works. I mean, I think we've kind of seen that with LinkedIn as it just sucked as a social media platform until Microsoft bought it. Now you're looking at 850 million users, close to 900 million users on LinkedIn. So I think overall, I think everyone's hoping that it will change and enable people to get more from tweeting out tweets. But could he also be buying a turkey? Could he be buying something that is maybe just, it's time has come and gone, and no matter what, he tries to do, it's just not going to revitalize it. Well, he already tanked the company, too. Yeah, (laughs) so, you know, there is that. Right. I think with Elon Musk, it seems like almost everything this guy touches turns to gold. And I think the same thing will happen with Twitter. I mean, when you're in the tech industry and you're looking, you're in, if you're in the forest, it can be hard to see what changes need to be made to, say, Twitter. But with Elon Musk being a user, an avid user of Twitter, and being able to come in as a user and make recommendations, I think you could see a revitalization of Twitter and more people getting back on the platform and getting involved. Because as we all know, influencers love using social media, and small businesses love using social media too. So any tool that they can use in order to market themselves and market their business, they're going to jump on immediately so that's a someday thing though right now is he getting a good deal because you know one of the reasons he said he backed out was because you know the market's changed and that price wasn't worth it anymore and then all through this what's happening lawsuit period a bunch of people quit and is he is he getting a a raw deal but it's kind of like you know what it was either this or go to trial so you made your bed now you got to sleep in it 
I think he got a raw deal because I don't think, I think when he jumped in, he didn't really investigate Twitter the way he should have. I mean, it also came up in recent months that Twitter didn't really have as many subscribers or users as they said. It was a took a whistleblower to come out and say, yeah, there's really not as many people as originally thought that were on Twitter. So I think in the end, like you said, he's probably just going to buy Twitter, lie in his bed and not worry about going through a messy trial. I'm wondering, is, is there some sort of limit on how many times he could buy, not buy, buy, not buy, and then buy again? I think so. I mean, I think it's kind of a one and done. I don't think that he can back out again and then say, okay, well, I'm going to buy it. I mean, obviously, Twitter's going to move on and try to find someone else who's going to buy the company. But I think at this point, Elon's the best shot that they have to make a purchase of the company. Burton Kelso, technology, social media, cybersecurity expert. When you buy food, you probably notice packages have a best before label with the date on it. Now, that's used to estimate peak freshness. It's actually not an expiration date. So why don't they just give me an expiration date? That would be easy, wouldn't it? Yeah. We talked earlier about fresh buy or freshest buy. Yeah. It makes no yeah. sense. None of these things make any sense. And uh, what ends up happening is that a lot of people throw away food that's okay to eat because they can't figure out the date thing. Some major stores in the UK have recently removed best before on some of the prepackaged stuff. EU's looking to make some changes. US, not doing anything. Should we? Lucy Bash, co-founder and chief executive officer, expansion officer at Too Good To Go, which is a company in the app that helps eliminate food waste. She's in France right now. Aaron Solomon is head of strategy and chief legal analyst at Esquire Digital. He's also lived in Europe. Thanks to you both for being here. Uh, Aaron, yeah, these labels, they're not always doing us a, a service, are they? They're doing us a massive disservice because, first of all, I've lived in places like Berlin. The labels in Europe are very different than they are here in North America. And what consumer is going to know the difference between Best Buy, Use Before? I mean, it, it's super confusing. There needs to be legislation that helps both the food industry and consumers understand what's going on. But why does it seem to be easy to pull that off in Europe and I guess the UK and not here? Well, I think my opinion is that there's so many more interests here that are fighting for the consumer dollar rather than paying attention to what we really should be paying attention to, which I know leads into Lucy's fantastic business, which should be we waste way too much food in North America, certainly much more so than they do in Europe. And we've got to do something about that because it's terrible for people and it's terrible for the environment. So, Lucy, let's bring you in. Yeah, there is a lot of food. I, I, we were looking up some of the, the numbers here and there's an article going around that says like 7% of the food waste just for the U.S. is is the label confusion. People, oh, I don't know. I'll just toss this out. Maybe I have another day or two. Maybe I don't. But there it goes in the trash. Exactly. And and you're perfectly right. I mean, the amount of food we waste every year is just crazy. 40% of the food that is produced is actually thrown away every year in the US. And that's responsible for 10% um, of the greenhouse gases emission. And it's also a lot of money for all of us, right? When we throw this food away and we don't eat it and we have to, to buy more food. So the, the best before labels are definitely confusing for consumer. And that means that we are throwing food away instead of eating it. Um, and that's what we've been doing a lot of work with Too Good To Go. Uh, originally, with an app that you can download and that connects you to stores that have leftovers at the end of the day. But the date labeling are really responsible for a big part of food waste, as you mentioned. And therefore, we wanted to do something around that as well. So, Lucy, what would be the ideal labeling in your view? 
Yeah, just something that is clear, you know. So we actually launched a massive campaign with many uh, industrials uh, in Europe, which is about adding the after best before. We added a label called, called look, smell, and taste after the date before throwing, throwing it away. And really mentioning that a best before is actually only for quality purposes, as you like, it, it means that it's better before, but it doesn't mean that you need to eat it by that date. So actually, after the date, you can still eat the product. Uh, supermarkets could still even sell it, but because consumers are confused and that supermarkets don't want to take the risk of of having the making the impression that they are selling expired product they just decide to take everything away and throw it away you know it's kind and of funny really where we have uh, yeah and that's really where too good to go wants to kind of make it easier for consumers to buy it at a reduced price of course but also to enable supermarkets to sell it instead of throwing it away have we taken away like the trust in our nose to smell the thing and then go yeah, we're pretty well equipped to be like mm, no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna eat that but instead we just look at the can and go oh i'm three days over i gotta toss this thing sorry yeah which is crazy when you think about it because there are also so many products that don't have um, a, a date if you think about fruit and vegetable if you think about cheese if you go to a cheesery or pastries at the bakery you actually don't have a date and then you actually just decide based on like the consistency, based on you you try a little bit and then you decide if you want to eat it or not. But it's nearly like as soon as you have a date on the product, then you just forget that you have senses and you just trust um, a producer or an industrials that has put a date for some reasons. And there are a lot of economical uh, reasons into this and you decide to throw the product away. And that's a shame. And we should all get more sens sensibilized so that we can make better choices. Well, Aaron, is, is part of the problem that so many supermarkets in this country, food is so expensive now and getting more expensive, it seems, every day that, you know, we were talking about how uh, if you eat something that's past the best buy date, it's still good. It may not be optimum. But isn't that kind of the supermarket's mindset that they want happy customers? And if their customers are going to be shelling out premium prices for the food, they want their customers to say, this is the best this particular item can be. But that doesn't really align with the business model of these large U.S. grocery stores, which should be not to discard food, especially today, given the fact that their acquisition costs since COVID are higher than ever. And as you said, of course, for the consumer, our acquisition costs are higher than ever, it seems. They shouldn't be discarding any of the food. And of course, any of the food that would be discarded absolutely should go to organizations such as Lucy's, Lucy's that has such a great social cause. But no, it really is up to these massive U.S supermarkets to sell the food because that's good for everybody. It's the worst thing in the world when it comes to food, when we have all of the costs of production, not just hard costs, but costs to our society and costs to our environment, and that food gets thrown out. Lucy, what about just um, how we've been conditioned to look at something and say, you know, that apple has to look like it's a cartoon drawing of an apple. That carrot has to be perfectly orange and pointy. It can't be a little funky or twisty or whatever. I'm not going to eat that. Well, if it's not perfect, it's still food. Like, you can still buy that and eat that stuff. Exactly. And that's where Too Good To Go really came into place with thinking, like, there are many products that are still perfectly good to be eaten. But we throw them away just maybe because the, the store is closing or maybe because the quality was not perfect. And that's where so we actually just launched a good to go in L.A. and we already have hundreds of stores. And the opportunity here is that when you download the app, you can pay around five dollars on the app and you'll get three times the value of the price you paid on the app. 
And it's really that win-win when as a store, you stop throwing food away and you actually get new consumers to your doors. But as a consumer, you get a really great food from like partners like uh, Le Pain Quotidien or Alfred Coffee or Tartine, the bakery and Ghost Pizza Kitchen uh, even. So you have a lot of different types of food that you get for a third of the price. And you're actually doing something for reducing waste. And for us, that's what is important is that people start to change their habits to get into a more sustainable consumption. But that is also aligned with your economical saving because we know that with inflation, everyone is struggling. <laughs> yeah. And for us, it's really aligning the planet and your bank account interest, basically. Lucy Bash, co-founder, chief expansion officer, too good to go. And Aaron Solomon, head of strategy, chief legal analyst at Esquire Digital. All right. We'll see you tomorrow.